that name will be the end of me. <laughs> Italian. The German's enemy. I am part Italian. That's what makes it worse. That does make it worse. I have an excuse. <laughs> Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic book nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. There are a lot of difficulties that come with getting into comic books as a medium. Unlike books, you're not necessarily taught the nuances of reading them through school or even from family. And unlike movies or television, it involves a lot of time investment just to get a hold of certain stories or even look up what stories you would even want to read. With long-running series spanning hundreds of issues with characters whose histories can date back almost a century, comics have had a lot of difficulty breaking into the mainstream. What's far more common is people get into comics because they've heard good things about a certain story or, more likely than not, a certain character. Characters, especially in the superhero genre, tend to be the most tangible way to get into comics themselves. Don't know how a shared universe works? Well, you pick a character who you like, for whatever reason, and just start looking for anywhere they pop up. Maybe they'll be on a team. Maybe they'll have guest appearances with other characters. And if you're one of the lucky ones, you picked a character who shows up in their own monthly solo series. You can imagine there are tons of ways this plays out. But in the past 50 years or so, there's been one particular character most responsible for introducing readers to comics. And his name is Bruce Wayne. Who's that? The rich guy? I'm sorry. I mean, Batman. We're talking about Batman this week. Oh, right. That guy. Yeah, you know, you might have heard of him. <laughs> but, you know, all jokes aside, we're no exceptions to this rule. Batman has had a major role in our own comic book experiences and even the foundation of our friendship. And we've both been endeared to the lovable jerk and his supporting cast of, no joke, dozens of well-defined and often well-performing individually su supporting cast. As much as oversaturation is definitely a thing in the world, it's worth pointing out that Batman has more books every month than every character in comics, including Superman and Spider-Man, for a reason. He is a sales giant, and often people's first introduction to superheroes. And if movie adaptations have taught us anything, it's that people like to start with an origin story. It's true. I think most people would agree it's difficult to fully invest in any story if you don't know what started the hero off, what motivates them, what built their character. So you'd think, you know, in an intuitive fashion, you would look at a comic book series and say, okay, we'll start with issue number one. It's never that simple, though. If you go looking for Batman number one, you'll find at least three Batman number ones. One from 2016, one from 2011, and another from 1940. Which, to be clear you will almost certainly not find on its own unless you are at an auction between millionaires. 
Honestly, number ones are rarely the origins for a superhero's character anyway. A new series in a shared universe like DC or Marvel would want to do a dry run of a character before even daring to give them their own dedicated comic. Even Superman didn't debut in Superman number one. Instead, he debuted in Action Comics number one a year prior. And Batman's the same way. His first appearance was actually in Detective Comics number 37. He didn't even get the honor of debuting in the first issue. Even so, we've discussed before how different comics from other eras are, and I have my doubts that the five-page origin story from Bill Finger and Bob Kane in 1940 would satisfy the modern-day desire to see origins of superheroes. Comic book companies are very, very well aware of these issues, and however successfully or not, have kind of become origin crazy themselves. It's honestly fairly rare for major characters like Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman to not have some retelling or new revelation about their origins at least every decade or so. It's a way to prime new generations of fans by giving them a readily accessible jumping point so they can jump right into the newer adventures. Also, so that already established fans will be forced to pay new money for the updated origin. So with all these comic book origins, most claiming the same title as the first adventures or complete origin of the character, we've come full circle to the question of where do I even start? Which origin is the best version? Which one is still canon? Which one will help me see what this character is about and why everyone seems to love them so much? While Batman is certainly not a character wanting for more starter packs, there is one origin story that has become so ubiquitous and so unavoidable that it has been referenced, re recreated, referred to, and just generally inspired more comics, television shows, movies, and more than we can even begin to dive into. Even its naming scheme has been adopted as the go-to pseudonym for other characters' origin stories. We're talking about, of course, Batman Year One, the seminal work of writer Frank Miller and artist David Mazzuccelli. We'll be talking in-depth about the story as a part of our review, so as always, if you're interested in reading this comic unspoiled, you should give it a read. It's almost literally never out of print, so I have confidence you can find it lurking around somewhere. This retrospective will also go into some of the impact on the comic as well as analyzing some of the elements which have not aged as well as others. So, content warnings up front for police brutality, discussions of sex work, and child abuse. To discuss Batman Year One, we first need to talk about where comics, and specifically DC Comics, were in 1987 when the comic was first published. To say that times were tumultuous would be underselling it by a country mile as DC had just pulled off what was, to date, the riskiest move in comics and rebooted their entire universe and set all of their characters, stories, and more back to a singular and supposedly comprehensive timeline. Nothing like Crisis on Infinite Earths had ever happened before. Something kind of funny considering today's reboot-happy climate. And all of DC's main characters were receiving shiny new revamps in order to reposition them and, ideally, reorient them to a positive new direction that was streamlined and full of new storytelling possibilities while still maintaining that 
iconic status. These changes took on many different forms depending on the character, their cultural impact, and their current popularity. Strong sellers like the New Teen Titans stayed mostly unchanged from the immediate aftermath of Crisis, while some comics kept their numbering, ongoing since the 30s and 40s for many of them, but had major character changes in tie-in books like Superman, Man of Steel, and the most floundering titles such as Wonder Woman were stopped and restarted at issue number one to hearken a new era for the stories and for the characters. Despite his popularity now, Batman was not doing so well by the 1980s and could have easily had his book canceled and reissued. The popular image of the time was not of a dark knight, but of a rather doofy caricature in backlash to the Adam West television show and the general turn of opinion on Super Friends we talked about last week. DC had just hired Denny O'Neill as an editor, and his well-known passion for the character and his lore over the last decade led him to want to make positive changes for Batman in a big way. At the time, one of the most talked about comics for its serious themes and grounded storytelling with a vigilante-style superhero was over at Marvel with Daredevil by Frank Miller and David Ma- Mazzuchelli. Frank Miller was not unfamiliar with the character or DC, as his also acclaimed series, Dark Knight Returns, was a four-issue miniseries that had been released in 1986. It was something of a swan song for the Silver Age and Bronze Age version of the character. Miller also had ideas for a revamped origin story for a new, darker direction for Batman that he shared with O'Neill. However, Miller was exhausted from doing double duties on several projects at once. So while he took on writing duties for year one, he went to a friend and collaborator, David Mazzuchelli, for the art. Which, thank God, because year one is positively gorgeous, to say the very least. While Frank Miller, as an artist, is highly, highly stylistic and very... Very much, your mileage may vary in terms of quality. Personally, where Miller's art works, it services the type of story he's telling. But it's hard for me to imagine your one in Miller's style, when he is exaggerated and cuboidal, while as a story and as an art piece, your one is very much grounded and attempting to apply to a sense of realism. Part of that, uh, part of that is what made the art so perfect in tone and scale. It was undeniable synchronism between Mazzuchelli and his colorist and wife, Richmond Lewis. The team was set, the universe was rebooted, and starting with Batman issue number 404, the four-issue storyline would truly begin. Year One tells its story in a very tight, very specific chronology. While not giving years, we are given months and even days ticking across throughout the story. On the same day, at nearly the same time, two people who have never met before both travel into Gotham, a corrupt and seedy city. Bruce Wayne, a billionaire on a jet, looks over the city he has not returned to for 12 years. And Jim Gordon, a police lieutenant transferring from Chicago PD after his department was unhappy about him reporting corruption, comes in by train. Unlike many Batman stories, Batman Year One places emphasis on Jim Gordon as less of a supporting character and more as a straightforward deuteragonist. Jim Gordon's story parallels Bruce, even as they find themselves in opposition to each other. 
Both men see themselves as being on a destined quest of sorts, needing to fight the same corruption and darkness for different reasons. Bruce wants to rid Gotham of the painful evil that took his family from him as a child. And Jim Gordon, supposedly, wants to better the world before he welcomes his new son into it. It's important to compare this origin with the origins of Batman that came before it, mostly because Miller himself has said his intention wasn't to undo or rewrite Batman's history necessarily, but to let Batman Year One slide easily into it with just a few adjustments that opened up the character for more stories in the future. Namely, he referenced several parts of the original Bill Finger and Bob Kane story in many spots, including the short shooting that orphaned Bruce and a fairly important scene that we'll cover later. Yes, a really good meme. I mean scene. This takes us into some of the heavier topics that we mentioned at the top. So please be warned. Jim Gordon is shown around Gotham by his new partner, a detective by the name of Arnold Flass. Flass is a real piece of work, a corrupt cop with no morals who goes around harassing citizens and attacking them while taking kickbacks from real criminals. Jim watches in particular as Flass goes and, unprompted, begins beating up a young black boy for supposedly having a weapon. When Jim points out that the weapon is actually just a hair comb, Flass is unapologetic, if not flat-out jovial about it. This is going to be a reoccurring theme in this episode. Jim is meant to be sympathetic or even likable from a reading perspective, but he ends up doing this a lot throughout. He monologues to himself about how bad the other cops are, how corrupt and evil the city is for allowing these things to happen, but ultimately Jim does little with his relative position to change things or stop things as they are in progress. It's written that it's heroic for Jim to not participate in violence while simultaneously doing nothing to stop it. Obviously, these sorts of things come off differently for most people in today's world, where discussions about police brutality are more common and more acceptable to speak out and to question. But it definitely doesn't place Jim in the best light, while simultaneously being pretty clear we're supposed to appreciate his side of things, that we're supposed to understand his job would be on the line if he spoke out about this about the corruption and violence he was witnessing on a day-to-day basis. He didn't stop the kids from getting beat up by a police officer, but hey, he personally beats up Flass in the snow later and feels self-righteous about it after Flass attacks him and threatens his wife. Not before. To give credit where it's due, an interpretation of this is that the toxicity and stagnation of justice is exactly the beast that Batman is meant to combat. Jim's lukewarm attempts to stand while not actively centering crosshairs on himself is all he can do from within the system. Batman, on the other hand, is not a police officer. He can go after the allies of corrupt officers, like Commissioner Loeb, without concern of direct retribution because that's not where Bruce's power comes from. Well, to be clear, at least at first, there's not much power that Bruce has against anyone. His first night out as a vigilante goes disastrously. And I am saying this with too much glee, because honestly, it is one of my favorite scenes in this story. Which runs us into our second warning from the top, however. Bruce Wayne travels into the East End, which functions in this story as something like Gotham's Red Light District. 
where we run into our upcoming Catwoman. Miller has said before that it was important to him that he could slide year one into Batman's established stories and, for the most part, be able to read everything together. And for many characters, that's true. To a surprisingly strong degree. Ain't true for Catwoman, though. Selina Kyle, our future Catwoman, also finds herself in a completely new way. Where once she was a socialite jewel thief. Socialite. Socialite. Okay. Where once she was a socialite jewel thief, serving as a devious yet romantic foil to Bruce Wayne's socialite philanthropist hero, Miller reimagines her as a dominatrix sex worker, working beneath an abusive pimp and protective of, again, third warning from the top here, a barely teenage girl who is also working the streets named Holly Robinson. Any passing familiarity with Miller's other works has one wonder if he has met a woman who wasn't a sex worker. But hey, when Bruce decides the onus is on him to mess with these women he doesn't know and possibly ruin their only livelihoods, he at least gets his rich butt handed to him. Bless, honestly. This take on Bruce Wayne is unlike almost any other you can find, even among Miller's works. He is a genuine green vigilante with too much cockiness, not enough experience, and constantly standing on a razor-thin edge. He doesn't know what he's doing, and it almost gets him killed time and time again. When Bruce dangerously drives himself home after a near-fatal injury, he drags himself into his mansion den and reflects on how everything is not going so well. To say the least. To say the very least. Bruce's internal monologue goes into a long diatribe dedicated to well, supposedly both of his parents, but pretty much exclusively towards his father, Thomas Wayne. He has no idea how to change his plans to live up to his expectations and how to avenge them against the darkness of a cruel and uncaring world. We reach a crescendo in the monologue when a bat, rather randomly, I might add, flies through the glass and lands on top of a bust Bruce has been staring at, which will lead us to a new section called We Read a Script. Father, I'm afraid I may have to die tonight. I've tried to be patient. I've tried to wait. But I have to know. How, Father? How do I do it? What do I use to make them afraid? If I ring the bell, Alfred will come. He can stop the bleeding in time. Another of your gifts to me, father. I have wealth. The family manor rests above a huge cave that will be the perfect headquarters. Even a butler with training in combat medicine. Yes. Yes, father. I have everything but patience. I'd rather die than wait another hour. I have waited 18 years. 18 years since... Since Zorro. The mark of Zorro. Since the walk that night, and the man with frightened, hollowed eyes, and a voice like glass being crushed, 
since all sense left my life. Without warning, it comes. Crashing through the window of your study and mine. I have seen it before, somewhere. It frightened me as a boy. Frightened me. Yes, father, I shall become a bat. To be clear, the art for this uh, make is gorgeous. Like this is a beautifully laid out section of the comic. Just uh, Frank Miller's prose when he is writing solely an internal monologue. Just the, uh, the his characters become so much less human when it's only an internal monologue with no dialogue or action to really humanize them. Yeah, and to. Again, like Steph said, it's beautiful. And to be clear, this is one of the big iconic moments Miller adopted from the original story by Finger and Kane. But to say year one gave it new life is underestimating it. The dramatization of the bat flying through the window and onto the bust inspiring Batman to become the bat was almost poetic. The panels, the page spreads, the framing, it's gorgeous and daunting. And, you know, the monologue sure is something. I love it. But in all the wrong ways. Miller has a very specific literary style that matches comic book aesthetics of really deep when you're 14. When you're sucked into that moment, it's very effective and really hypes you up in that Oh man, this is it. He said the thing. He's going to become Batman. But if you're not in that mood or frame of mind, say, awake at three in the morning at your friend's dorm, it becomes an endlessly quotable meme moment. You know, Brooke, I have to say that's one personal life experience of yours that I could have imagined happening even though it happened years before we met. It's pretty on brand, I'll admit. Once the decision to become Batman is made, the story wraps up pretty quickly. While comic storylines are normally dragged out to six issues or longer to wrap up a single story, Batman Year One has no time to waste and sets itself up to be brisk and lean. That isn't to say it doesn't accomplish what it wants to in terms of taking us through the basics of Bruce and Jim's parallel experiences over the nominal first year for both of them. There's plenty of that including a few highlights of one of Bruce's first nights in costume as Batman. He attempts to stop a few burglars who are escaping through a fire escape, and even though they are no-name, low-offending criminals, he nearly gets taken out by them. By the end of the struggle, he's resting on the fire escape with the unconscious bandits, winded and frustrated with himself, and cursing himself out for being lucky instead of good. It's great character building. The learning curve is steep, but you feel Batman making a name for himself among the criminal element and the corrupt law enforcement both, which makes it that much more interesting as Jim's personal problems and work problems become entwined with the ongoing Batman saga. He is assigned to a task force with another detective, Sarah Essen, 
with the specific aim of taking out Batman after Bruce makes enemies of Gotham elite and organized crime. The unend dedicated new assistant district attorney, Harvey Dent, makes fast friends with Batman and works alongside him in secret. Enough so that Jim suspects for a time that Harvey himself is the man behind the mask. It's a genuinely interesting perspective that further drives that eventual tragedy of what is to become of Harvey Dent and the personal ache that is to Bruce Wayne when Harvey becomes Two-Face. After several stain operations organized by Jim Gordon and Sarah Essen, Batman is finally cornered when he is forced to choose between escaping his police pursuers and saving a woman from an oncoming truck. He chooses the latter as a hero and is shot at the in the leg as a result. He has to seek shelter in a rundown house full of vagrants. It's a seemingly short-sighted plan as it quickly becomes surrounded by the police and the Gotham SWAT team, known for their viciousness even more than the normal Gotham levels of police brutality. And here, Future State thinks it's being new by suggesting Gotham could become a fascist police state. Right? As the stand-down has gone on for quite a while, crowds of bystanders have gathered, including Selina Kyle and her young friend Holly Robinson. Everyone waits in anticipation as the SWAT team enters the building to go after the mysterious Batman. But Bruce has other plans utilizing his environment to take out many of the SWAT members and evade capture, even saving a cat along the way. Then the most comic book thing in comic books happens. Yeah, so in this really grounded and realistic story, the only way Batman can really get out of the situation he was written in was to have a kind of sonic tool we've never seen or heard about before that he created off page himself like this story does not really emphasize bruce's bruce has been a genius inventor before in other stories and will be again but this story has not touched on that honestly this story's barely touched on his detective skills he's like a lot more clearly in this one a guy with a tool belt and a lot of money in also some, like, good scare tactics. Psychological warfare stuff. But he just has invented himself a sonic tool that attracts bats to him and helps him escape. Ugh. You all right over there, Brooke? Look, the size of the rant I have for this is not justified by its amount of page space or audio time. So I'll just make a friendly PSA saying, please don't use sonic waves or any loud noises really to distress bats. Their populations aren't enough problems, especially in highly developed urban areas like Gotham City. (laughs) (laughs) And also uh, everybody in Gotham pretty much needs to get rabies shots after that event. So, you know, you know, be careful with bats. They're not really having a good rep right now because everything that's happening with COVID. But, you know, just be nice to them. They're doing their best. They're just little guys just trying to fly their way through the world. And eating mosquitoes. We should support them. But, yes, eventually Jim, who has made just as many enemies among the officers and organized crime as Batman himself, thanks to his concentrated efforts with Harvey Dent, And Jim's now constantly under threat. An attempt to blackmail him is made, 
attempting to use his affair with Sarah Essen against him. Just gotta say, cheating on a pregnant wife, supposedly due to stress, is definitely a choice to make with a character we're supposed to like and sympathize with. Some will find the choice humanizing, others confused. It ends up doing little besides force Sarah to transfer out of Gotham and Jim to have to confess to his wife before the affair is further used against him. Things truly heat up when both Batman and the newly minted Catwoman both hit the resident mob boss Carmine the Roman Falcone at the same time for very different reasons. Selina is there for riches and mysterious personal reasons that aren't touched on too much in year one. And Bruce is attempting to record and get information on the next moves of the criminal element. Bruce realizes that the next goal is for the Gor- for Jim Gordon's family to be targeted. Particularly his wife and his newly born son, James Jr., who will be familiar to modern day Batman fans as a villain. <laughs> but you know, he's a baby right now. A baby who no one seems to know how to support the back of his head. He is in such a rush to stop this attack on the Gordon family from happening that he jumps on his bike out of costume and in broad daylight. The Gordon family is attacked, but Jim and his wife are not taken. Instead, the botched attempt succeeds at only getting their newborn son away from... I butchered that last sentence. The botched attempt still succeeds in getting their newborn son, James, however. At a bridge, a standoff takes place between Gordon and the kidnappers, who drop baby James over the edge. Bruce leaps off after the baby, catching him in the air and turning himself to minimize the damage to both of them from the river. Gordon, racing down the ledge after them, stands at the water's edge without his glasses, accepting his son from the unmasked Batman. He claims, point blank, in broad daylight, in clear view of the world, that he can't see a thing without his glasses, and lets Batman go. The story ends with Gordon himself becoming captain and installing the bat signal, using it to call on his new friend. Batman Year One was a major success during its time. The success of the Crisis on Infinite Earths relaunch led to an overall 22% raise in sales across DC Line, a new further among fans, and especially with the rise of the direct market. For the Batman book, the four years of Batman Year One sold, on average, over 38% higher than pre-Crisis book sales. The impact on popular culture was also massive. Year One is consistently lauded by critics and fans as must-read comic for people, and has been the inspiration, if not direct source material, to many Batman stories for film and television. Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, the start of the Dark Knight trilogy, was heavily influenced by Year One. And a personal favorite, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, also has credited inspiration from Year One, especially in its portrayal of a young Bruce starting out as a vigilante. While Batman origin stories have continued to be revisited over and over and over again in the years since year one, there has been justified hesitance in trying to completely overtake or contradict it. Most comic writers in recent years have leaned heavily on the characterizations and precedences established by year one for their stories. So it's far more likely for comics looking into Batman's early years to play around the edges of year one's timeline while still keeping year one relatively untouched. 
There have been attempts at continuing the story directly in follow-ups like the aptly named Batman Year 2 and Batman Year 3. Not often remembered these days, arguably for good reason. Along with many other tie-ins like Catwoman, Her Sister's Keeper, picking up the gaps in Selina's part of the story. Most remembered these days would be the direct sequels published in the 90s, written by Jeff Loeb and uh, drawn by Tim Slee. Batman The Long Halloween and Batman Dark Victory. We've really only scratched the surface on adaptations, cultural impact, and even the story itself. It's fascinating how much we know about Batman as a character today comes, at least in part, from this one storyline. Really, the only thing that uh, is left is our personal perspectives on the story. I actually have read Batman Year One thoroughly on several occasions. While I've been a fan of several members of the Bat family, my affections for Bruce Wayne as a character were always fairly limited. It was hard for me to really break past the... Uh, past his rough exterior, and get to the character uh, deep down. For me, Batman Year One was the first time I felt myself connecting with Batman and understanding his thought process. While I have a lot of criticisms of things I think have not aged well, the stuff with Jim, Miller's need to insert sex workers in negative light, and so on, I still find myself reflecting on the story very strongly. It's the origin story for Bruce Wayne that most helps me love the man who becomes Batman. I understand him and I sympathize with him more uh, in this story than in dozens of stories where he just puts down everybody and explains how he already is the best at everything. It's definitely my favorite work by Frank Miller, which uh, may not be the compliment I'm trying to make it be here, but that's just me. Steph? Uh, your experience with year one is quite a bit different from mine, so uh, you gotta let me know. What's your take? So, uh, there was a period um, in the uh, late 2000s, early 2010s, where DC was doing a string of animated adaptations of a lot of things that were really disjointed and disconnected from each other. Uh, the DC animation department would kind of start become, forming a series of movies that kind of formed a more coherent narrative and in single animation style later on I think starting with Justice League Doom or something not Justice League Doom when they started adapting the new 52 whenever that was uh, so and I was really into them when I was a kid I got my hands on the DVD of the movie through my local library and I watched it more than a few times it left an interesting impression on me it was clear, definitive, and definitely influential storyline that affected my later readings, but the movie was far from a favorite of mine, honestly, from the DC animation movie lineup. Uh, top marks have to go to Superman slash Shazam Return of Black Adam with uh, Under the Red Hood coming up as a close second. Uh, so actually coming for this podcast to actually reading the original storyline for the first time and then later rewatching the movie to kind of revisit it. Uh, was really interesting. The story was pretty much what I remembered, since the movie really just copies the storyline beat for beat. But a lot of the strengths of the comic are really lost in the translation to the movie. Uh, the art style and visual dynamics possible through a comic book stylism is just completely lost in the movie. A fantastic scene where 
Bruce interrupts several wealthy Gothamites gossiping by throwing them into pitch blackness is conveyed starkly in the comics with mostly black panels with only Bruce's glowing eyes visible. And that just isn't conveyed in the animation because they have just dim the lights and we can still see everything that's happening, which really undercuts it. Uh, the movie does give Jim and Bruce a few more humanizing moments with things like Jim offering children gum and comforting people. They cut off some of their more like grumpy old men who hate everybody and don't think anyone exists who is good in the world moments. Like, you know, they don't insult the vagrants who get, who get killed when the building Bruce is in is bombed quite as often. Uh, Jim only insults them once versus the, like, 20 times they get insulted in the original comic. Um, they become, you know, less unsympathetic through these, from the cuts that they make and these few extra moments. A few things like Jim is shown to be a bit nicer to his wife than he is in the comic. Uh, but generally, it's just... A copy that slightly less good because of the of the art changes although i must say i simultaneously appreciate and mourn the change the fact that they changed it so that harvey dent wasn't hiding bruce directly under his desk during his confrontation with jim gordon about whether or not harvey dent is batman i find that an unforgivable sin personally you know it is you know it's tragic because him hiding him beneath his desk is hilarious but also you know, a bit more dignity for Bruce there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the amount of personal restraint it has taken me to not put out a Cassandra Cain recommendation was a challenge that I met. I did it. We got our podcast to over 10 episodes before I started to ever so subtly change course to make this, con this podcast, the Cassandra Cain and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle show that Steph has been dreading this entire time. Oh, yes. I have been dreading it. All joking aside, I can't let a Batman-centric episode go by without using my recommendation to promote my favorite comic book character and really favorite fictional character, period, Cassandra Kane. I can earnestly say I would not be the superhero buff I am today, or nearly as well-read, had it not been for the way her story and characters spoke to me from a young age. I'd love to recommend the entirety of her first solo series, Batgirl, running from 2000 to 2006, and I basically am. But fortunately, her series has been ever so slowly recollected and re-released for readers, and the first volume, Silent Night, does a good job of sticking to our theme of accessible places to start reading. Cassandra Kane is a young woman with a unique way of communicating with the world. Her first language is not with words but with bodies and violence. After her own heroic deeds and standing up against her assassin father, she has been given the opportunity to seek redemption as Batgirl. Mentored by Batman and the original Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, she has to learn to communicate with the world, save as many people as possible, and someday find peace within herself and with her past. Batgirl Silent Night collects the first 12 issues of her landmark original series by Kelly Puckett, Scott Peterson, no, the other Scott Peterson, and Damian Scott, as well as the first annual. Uh, for a more recent rec, for those of us who might want to go looking for a Catwoman who's a little less Frank Miller, I'm going to recommend Under the Moon, A Catwoman Tale, 
from DC's imprint, DC Inc. DC Inc., which we've mentioned before, is uh, DC's imprint, which creates graphic novels rather than monthly comic book issues. And these are aimed at younger audiences. So this is generally a more child-friendly storyline. You know, without the sex worker stuff and the you know, and just generally Frank Millerness of it all. It tells the story of Selena Kyle escaping an abusive home and living on the streets. It's a lovely retelling of Catwoman's origins with lovely art and a great story. And it's a really compelling tale of how Selena Kyle becomes Catwoman and also features a shockingly lovely version of a young Bruce Wayne. Usually when you encounter a young Bruce Wayne in fiction, pre-Batman, you, you just hate him because he hasn't had his character development come and kick him in the butt yet. But this is probably one of the better versions of a pre-character development Bruce Wayne that I have encountered, even beyond all of its strengths, um, as a Selena Kyle origin story for children. And that wraps up this retrospective. Imagine the gall of a fledgling podcast waiting until episode 12 to get a Batman-specific topic. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or rating, or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about angsty comic origin stories, or just really like Batman, I, I mean comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. one yeah i mean they're all they're all perfect because we're amazing but that was a good one <laughs>